you. Hello, um, as David has said, my name is Joel. Uh, I have been here with Ruth, my wife, um, about a year. I think coming up next month, we've been around for a year. Uh, so for those of you who are new, maybe you've been here more than I have, um, but um, in a year's time, you never know <laughs> where you'll be. Um, so today we are looking um, at something that I found quite significant, and I'm going to try and express it to you, and I don't feel that I've got the structure perfectly in my head, so I'm hoping that you get it. Um, I'm praying that the Holy Spirit will help us to understand what he's trying to communicate, because it's been really significant to me, and I'm hoping it will be significant to you too. Um, and basically, the sermon is about the, significant of, the significance of God's glory, and particularly his presence. Um, so, uh, it'll unfold as we go along. Um, and the way my thoughts came about to this was um, I work at a place called The Ark, and it's a charity. We work with vulnerable adults. And um, within that charity, it's a Christian charity, so we try and do Bible studies with some of our volunteers. And I do that every other week in the evening. And one week we read through a book on community. Uh, so once a month we do a chapter on, on community and we discuss what it means to be a community and a Christian community. And the other week there's a lot of people within the Bible study who have very little biblical background. And we're working through this. It's called The Essential 100 and it was developed by Script Union. And it's basically it's a book on the essential 100 readings, according to the person who wrote it, that will take you through the story of the Bible. So it takes you from creation to the fall, and then it follows the line of the seed, uh, taking you and pointing you towards Jesus. So it's trying to give you a big overview of Scripture and what it's about. Uh, and so we're trying to follow that. And we got to the place in that book where we're in Second Samuel, and we were reading through chapters 5, 6, and 7. Um, and in 2 Samuel chapter 5, David is anointed king over all of Israel. Um, and he becomes the prototype of an anointed one who is to come. And then in chapter 7, the end of this section, God makes a covenant with David uh, in verses 11 to 14 and says this, Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. When your days are fulfilled, you will lie down with your fathers. I will raise up your offspring after you, so that's your seed. So this is the line that we're following. So you're going to have a seed that comes after you, who will come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name. Um, and I think it's pointing to Jesus, and I think he's talking about the house for his name being us, the temple of his spirit. And I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. So these are the two chapters within that section of 5, 6, 7 that the author of this wanted us to concentrate on because they were to do with the line and the seed and what was promised to come. But as soon as I read through the three chapters, I noticed chapter 6 in the middle and realized that we wouldn't actually get talking about the other two. Um, and I was right. Chapter 6 is all about David. He's conquered Jerusalem. He's decided he wants to move the Ark of the Covenant from where they're staying up to Jerusalem. And um, the reason why we know this story really well is because there's uh, a guy called Uzzah who is walking alongside the Ark. And as the Ark uh, is traveling along, one of the oxen stumble and Uzzah puts out his hand to steady the Ark and God strikes him down. And I knew immediately because this passage is difficult for us who know scripture well to understand um, without doing a lot of background and looking at it. Um, but I knew that with people who 
don't have a good overview of scripture, that this would be quite controversial, um, that it would just raise a lot of questions. Um, they, we've been talking about how good and gracious God is and what a loving father he is. And all of a sudden he's striking somebody dead. He just tries to stop an ark from falling over. And you think, why is that fair? How is, is that a thing? And I've noticed whenever we read scripture that as we come across some of these passages that seem controversial, these are the ones that take up our time. These are the ones that people are drawn to. And I think that there's a number of reasons for this. Some of us want to find fault. We want to prove that God is not the just, gracious, amazing God that we think he is uh, or that we have been told he is. Some of us are confused because we think he is a good and just and amazing God, but we think, well, if he's good and just and amazing, why did this happen? And then I love these passages because for me, whenever I actually look into them in any depth, I usually find that I learn the most actually about who God actually is and the most about who I am in relation to him. And I tend to find I learn the most from passages that I struggle with. So um, it's, it's one of those ones that, that hopefully we're going to learn a lot from. Hopefully, hopefully it works for you too. Um, the other thing that was happening as I was reading through these Bible studies was on the way home from work. I've got a 45-minute drive. I'll listen to a podcast or something, or I'll pray. And this day I was listening to a podcast and it's driving along, and it was all about, well, it was a series, it's a Bible Project podcast, it was all about the image of God, and the idea of the podcast was that we are created in God's image, and our purpose is to image God. So that was the reason we were created, to image God, to reflect Him. Um, but then this turned into a whole new discussion about the glory of God, because one of the people on the podcast said, but I thought our purpose was to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. And so, from the Westminster Confessions. So, then it got into a massive discussion about the glory of God and how we glorify Him. So, listening to that conversation at the same time as reading this passage really brought new light on the passage for me. Um, I sort of had understood it before, but it just enlightened it in an even greater way that made me made it really stand out for me and I think it's really important and I'd like to try and bring those two things together today. Um, so I think the best place to start is for us to actually read the passage. <laughs> so let's do that. So we're in 2 Samuel chapter 6. Right. So 2 Samuel chapter 6, and I'm going to read most of it. I think I'll finish it at about verse 15. David again gathered the chosen men of Israel, 30,000. Apparently when there's three or any number with a three in it, it signifies that there's a test about to happen. Um, and the other thing is 40. So 40 and 3, so you have three days of testing uh, in the wilderness, or, or three days in Jonah in the whale, and but you've got the 40 days in the wilderness and 40 years. And so if you ever see three, 30,000, all of it, apparently it signifies a test. So this is something that's an aside anyway, but it's quite interesting. And David arose and went with the people who were with him from Baal, Judah, to bring up from there the ark of God, which is called by the name of the Lord of hosts who sits enthroned on the cherubim. That's important. So the ark of God is called by his name. He sits enthroned on the cherubim. It's all about his presence. And they carried the ark of God on a new cart. That's also important. And they brought it out of the house of Abinadab, which is on the hill. And Uzzah and Ohio, the sons of Abinadab, were driving the new cart with the ark of God. And Ohio went before the ark. And David and all the house of Israel were celebrating before Yahweh, the Lord, with songs and lyres and harps and tambourines and castanets and cymbals. And when they came to the threshing floor of Nacon, Uzzah put out his hand to the ark of God and took hold of it, for the oxen had stumbled. And the anger of the Lord was kindled against Uzzah, and God struck him down because of his error. And he died there beside the ark of God. 
And David was angry because the Lord had broken out against Uzzah. And that place is called Perez Uzzah to this day. And David was afraid of the Lord that day. And he said, how can the ark of the Lord come to me? So David was not willing to take the ark of the Lord into the city of David. But David took it aside to the house of Obed-Edom the Gittite. And the ark of the Lord remained at the house of Obed-Edom the Gittite three months. And the Lord blessed Obed-Edom and all his household. And it was told David, the Lord has blessed the household of Obed-Edom and all that belonged to him because of the ark of God. So David went up and brought the ark of God to the house of Obed-Edom, to the city, from the house of Obed-Edom to the city of David with rejoicing. When those who bore the ark of God had gone six steps, they sacrificed an ox and a fattened animal. And David danced before the Lord with all his might. And David was wearing a linen ephod. So David and all the house of Israel brought up the ark of the Lord with shouting and with the sound of the horn. And it's an amazing chapter and the next section is pretty good and I want to keep going. But that's not what today is about. Um, when we read a passage like this, um, like I said before, if we're honest with ourselves, our immediate reaction is we're a bit confused. And that's if we know and trust God. And reading this passage with people who are on the edge of faith or who, who are struggling or who don't know much, um, they don't hold back on their questioning as to whether God is that good, gracious, loving God that we have been describing to them. And they ask those questions, is it fair? Isn't this harsh? What did you do wrong? So, I feel that in order to answer those sort of questions to the passage, uh, in fact, I think that the answer to the, all of those questions to the passage are all about the glory of God. And that's going to seem a bit strange to you. It seems like a straight, strange statement. You think, well, how does God get glory from this? Um, but I don't think it's so much about God getting glory from it or, or it being about giving glory to God. It's more about it's because of God's glory. Um, it's because of who God is that Uzzah dies. And this is where the podcast comes in. Um, before talking about what it means for us to glorify God, they decided to define what glory meant and, and what, what it meant for God to have glory. And the word glory in Hebrew is kavod, um, which basically means weight. So when we say that God is glorious, we say that he is heavy. You know, he is substantial. There's weight there. He is heavy, heavy. Uh, he is very significant. Um, and we may think that's a strange way of describing things, using weight as a way of describing significance or heaviness, but we do the same in our language. Uh, we use the word heavy or things that to do, to do with substance and, and weight. So we talk about the gravity of a situation or we talk about what they said was something that was quite heavy. That was a weighty thought. Um, we don't want to be treated lightly. Um, and if we put our weight behind something or into something, we're putting ourselves into it altogether. And if somebody is more important, then we say that they have more weight on an issue, um, that they will come in with more weight. Um, and even the word matter, if something matters, the word matter is about substance. You know, matter is a thing. It matters. Um, so we've got this idea of God being significant. He, he matters. He is glorious in that he is so big and heavy and, and weighty. Um, and this idea of God's glory being about his significance, about his weight, about just who he is, not about what we say about him. I think we tend to think of the word glory as an we give somebody glory, we say nice things. And we think it's just words. But actually, this glory is who he is. He has weight. He has substance. Um, and it really struck me, this whole idea. So I decided to look at glory a little bit more and think, well, if God really matters, then it really matters what we do in relation to him. 
Um, so what is it about glory? What, what else does glory mean? What is glory about? And you know the passage in Isaiah 6 where there's the seraphim and they are flying and they've got two wings covering their eyes and two covering their feet and they've got the other wings and they're flying and they're crying out before the Lord, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is full of his. And you would expect them to say holiness because... He just said how holy he is. Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. So holiness and glory are linked in some sort of way. Um, God's holiness is all about him being a class by himself. So he's separate from us. So the actual word means separate. So he's in a class by himself. He is separate in that he has got perfection and greatness and worth that are all infinite. Um, so that is his holiness. And John Piper describes God's glory as God's holiness made manifest. So it's God's holiness and it's the way in which we see God's holiness. It's how it's shown to us is through his glory. So what is this to do with the passage that we just read? Well, to me, this passage is about how glorious and great and massive God is. He is significant. He matters more than anything, and we cannot treat him lightly. How did they treat him lightly? Well, they treated him lightly by ignoring what he had said about the mo how the most holy things should be handled. So, the ark was kept in the most holy place of the tabernacle. It signified God's presence. Um, and there were special rules for how those things could be handled because God's presence was so intense that people could not approach it. So God had been gracious enough to send his presence to dwell with the Israelites. But he had had to give them a way of containing that presence in a way that they could handle. And so he had put it within this tent uh, in this holy place so that only certain people could come before it and um, they had to be have sacrifices made on their behalf and stuff so they could actually get in there. Um, in Numbers, there's a whole lot of rules about how these things could be handled um, and, and who could handle them. In Numbers 4, verses 4 to 15, it says, This is the servant, service of the sons of Kohath. So the sons of Kohath were the Levites. They were one of three sort of clans within the Levites. Um, so you've got three family groups within the Levites, and each family group had different responsibilities for transporting the tent of meeting and the holy things of God. And the sons of Kohath had responsibility for the most holy things. Um, so he says, These, this is the... This is the service of the sons of Kohath in the tent of meeting, the most holy things. When the camp is to set out, because remember they're moving around the desert here, Aaron and his son shall go in and take out the veil of the screen. So that's the curtain that prevent, uh, basically prevents you getting into the most holy place that protects you from that. So you take down that veil. These are the sons of Aaron, so these are the priests. They go in, they take down that veil. And then they cover the Ark of the Testimony with it. Then they shall put on it a covering of goatskin. So they cover it with goatskin after the veil. And then on top of that, they spread a cloth of blue. And then they put its poles in place. And then it goes on and tells us about the table of presents, the lampstands, and things like that. And they all have to be covered up uh, with cloths and with goatskin and stuff. Uh, and then, they t even with the altar, they take away the ashes, they cover the altar uh, with all these cloths and things. And they put it all together, uh, and they put the handles in place, the, the poles in place for carrying. And then it says in verse 15, And when Aaron and his sons have finished covering the sanctuary and its furnishings, as the camp sets out, after that the sons of Kohath will come in and carry these things, but they may not touch the holy things lest they die. These things are the things of the tent of meeting that the sons of Kohath are to carry. And then when we get to chapter 7 of Numbers, 
it tells us how they're to be transported then. So you get to chapter 7 and verses 1 to 9. It says, On that day Moses finished setting up the tabernacle and had anointed and consecrated it with all its furnishings and anointed and consecrated the altar and all its utensils. So everything in the tabernacle was anointed and consecrated to make it holy. And then the chiefs of Israel and the heads of the fathers' houses who were the chiefs of the tribes who were over those who were listed, so over the whole family of Israel, approached. And they brought their offerings before the Lord, six wagons and twelve oxen, a wagon for every two of the chiefs and for each one an ox. So they gave some oxen and some wagons to Moses for use for the Levites for the tent of meeting. And the Lord said to Moses, Accept these from them that they may be used for the service of the tent of meeting, and give them to the Levites, to each man according to his service. So Moses took the wagons and the oxen and gave them to the Levites. Two wagons and four oxen oxen he gave to the sons of Gershon, according to their service. And And four wagons and eight oxen he gave to the sons of Moriah, Merari, sorry, according to their service, under the direction of Ithma, the son of Aaron, the priest. But to the sons of Kohath he gave none, because these were carried with the service of the, of the holy things that were to be carried on the shoulder. So there were specific laws from God that oxen and carts should not be used to carry the most holy things, including the Ark of the Covenant. Um, and yet they were so holy they had to be protected with loads of coverings so that people couldn't get near them. And then they had to be carried on the shoulder because they had to be treated differently because they were holy. They signified God's presence. So the Levites were given oxen and wagons to help them to transport the tabernacle and its furnishings. And this was acceptable for God for everything except for the most holy things. But instead of obeying God and how it should be transported in our story. They tried to honor him their own way. And it looked really impressive. They had 30,000 people, and they were dancing and rejoicing and, and all sorts of things before God. So from a human point of view, it looks like they were honoring God, but it's not about honoring God our way. Um, it's not taking into account God's glory, because he's given us the way in which he should be treated, because... He is so significant that we cannot come near just any old way. We can't make up the way of coming near. It's like saying, I want to travel to the sun, but I'm happy to go in my paper airplane because, um, you know, because I think that's going to be good enough. Or I, I could even build a lovely spaceship myself and go, but actually I need something a bit more significant than that because I'm approaching something too significant for what I can just make up. I need somebody who knows more than I do to make it up so that I can get close to the sun. In fact, no one has made that up yet. But that's what it is like approaching God. We can't just make up how we approach him um, because he is more significant than the sun. He made the sun. In fact, the stars declare his handiwork. All of those stars out there are millions and millions and billions of suns. And none of them are approachable, and all of them declare his glory. Um, So we are so, when we compare that to the glory of man, it calls the glory of man. He says, you know, we're like the grass of the field that withers in a day, and yet his glory is like the universe that declares his glory. So our significance compared to his significance is massively different. Um, And we can't just decide this is how we're going to treat him because we think it's good. Um, sorry I went off script there so I'm going to come back and try and find where I was (laughs) Um, so um, yeah basically the way in which the ark was transported was more like the way in which the Philistines had transported the ark so when the ark had gone down to the Philistines they had stolen the ark in some battle and they had had the ark and They ended up getting loads of um, diseases and stuff around it and their their guards were falling over and breaking in front of it uh, because it signifies God's presence and no guard could stand before it. And they just became afraid of it and they were like, let's send it back. And they put it on a new cart uh, with 
with, with oxen. Uh, and the Israelites are copying them rather than figuring out how they should transport it. And in fact, the Philistines probably had more faith because they didn't dare go with it. They sent it away on its own and trusted that if God had, had control, he could look after the ark, okay, himself. Um, so we cannot honor God no matter how impressive it looks from a human point of view if we disobey him, if we do it our way. We can only honor God his way. Um, so why did these most holy things within the tabernacle matter so much why were there special rules about them and how they should be transported well I've, I've talked about this a little bit but the most holy place was where God was to dwell on earth and the things in it represented his presence on earth especially the ark. On the lid of the ark was what was known as the mercy seat, and it was like God's throne on earth. So it's where he sat. And no one could approach this ark um, except for once a year when the high priest could go in and he would approach the ark um, to offer sacrifices on behalf of the people of Israel on the Day of Atonement. But even then, he went in with a rope tied around his leg in case he was struck down. You know, it was so glorious that if there was a hidden sin or something that, you know, people were afraid and they wouldn't dare go in to try and get him. So they had a rope around his leg so they could drag him out. Um, God is so holy. He is so glorious that we cannot see his glory and love. Um, you know, Moses at one point asks, Lord, show me your glory. And he's like, no one can see my glory and live. And he gets him to hide in the cleft of a rock and he puts his hand across him, passes by and lets him see his back. Um, because seeing him too much. And with all that, there were storms and tempests and lightnings and thunders. Um, you know, I don't know if you've ever watched some of those TV programs. I haven't watched many of them, but I have seen where people chase storms. And it's like, there's a storm and, you know, this significant you don't go near the storm but there are some people who do <laughs> but that's what it was like God's glory came in a storm and and then he passed by and then he saw the back he got a quite a glimpse of God's glory but that's all that Moses could handle um, he couldn't see him in love so coming into God's presence is a serious business um, yeah and when people experience God's presence in the Bible and they experience his glory in the Bible we see that they collapse before him you know they tremble and they fear they, you know even the angels cover their faces and I was listening to one guy talking about the glory of God, and he's like, why did God create the seraphim with six wings? He's like, because he created them for the job of worshiping before him day and night, and they needed something to cover their eyes. They didn't need six wings to fly. He gave them six wings so that they could actually be in his presence. Um, he's that glorious. The Israelites on Mount Sinai were so afraid of God's glory and his presence that they begged not to hear God's voice anymore. Deuteronomy chapter 5, verse 22 to 29 says thus, These words the Lord has spoken to all your assembly at the mountain, out of the midst of fire. So he's about to re recite to them the, the laws that they were given. So out of the, at the mountain, out of, in the midst of fire, in the cloud, in the thick darkness. So there's fire, cloud, darkness. There was a loud voice and he added no more. So these are the words. He gave them on two tablets and he gave them to me. And as soon as you heard the voice out of the midst of the darkness, whilst the mountain was burning with fire, you came near me to the heads of all, the tri the heads of all your tribes and your elders and said, Behold, the Lord our God has shown us his glory and his greatness, and we have heard his voice out of the midst of the fire. This day we have seen God speak with man and man with man and still live. Now, therefore, why should we die? For this great fire will consume us if we hear the voice of the Lord our God any more. We shall die. 
For who is there of all flesh that has heard the voice of the living God out of the midst of the fire as we have and still lived? Go near and hear that all that the Lord our God will say and speak to us. All that the Lord our God will speak to you, we will hear and do it. And the Lord heard your words when you spoke to me. And the Lord said to me, I have heard the words of this people. They have spoken to you, and they are right in what they have spoken. Oh, that they had such a mind as this always, to fear me and to keep my commandments, that it might go well with them and with their descendants forever. The right view of God's glory, the right understanding of how great he is, gives us a healthy fear of God as we realize the significance of the weight of his presence. Even in our story, uh, Uzziah's death resulted in David being afraid of God, getting a healthy fear of God, and that was the right response. Um, and he, he went back and he looked, and he found out, we got, in First Chronicles, the thing tells them, us, they realized they'd done it wrong, and he went back, and when they did it again, they carried it, and they had things, and they made sacrifices. They took it very seriously. Um, It results in a healthy fear of God. Yeah, so David became more aware of God's significance and his unworthiness to come near to that God in his own way, in his own strength. It reminds me of a quote from C.S. Lewis, his Narnia books, when Lucy asks if Aslan is safe. And the reply that she gets is, no, he's not safe, but he is good. And that is who God is. He's not safe. We can't just approach him as we want. But he is good. He wants us to approach him. Um, but he wants us to approach him his way. God is not safe. He's holy. He's glorious. He's significant. And he needs to be approached with caution. When people approach God in the Bible, they collapse in fear. I already said this. And the seraphim cry out, holy, holy, holy. They cover their faces. So... I've, I've been really seeking God's presence loads and loads recently. But I don't think I really know what I've been asking for. And I think this is what really struck out for me as I was, as I was listening to this conversation and reading the story. I was like, do I actually know the significance of what I'm asking for as I ask for God's presence? Um, if God showed his glory fully to me, I wouldn't be able to stand it. So how on earth can I come into his presence? How do I ask for God's presence? I think his presence is really important. And, and we're going to get to this a bit later. But I think we need to realize that it's a significant thing we're asking for as we ask to come into his presence or ask him to make himself more present to us. Psalm 97 describes God like this. I almost read Psalm 96 too. I'm glad David did this morning, a bit of it. Uh, Psalm 97, in fact, the Psalms are full of passages about God's glory. And when you see what glory means and you start to see it all over the place, it just changes the way you think about each of those passages. The Lord reigns, let the earth rejoice. Let the close lands be glad. So the Lord reigns, it's good, let the earth rejoice. So he's significant, he's massive, whatever, but it's good. Clouds and thick darkness are all around him. The righteousness and justice are the foundation of his throne. Fire goes out from before him and burns up all his adversaries all around. His lightnings light up the world. The earth sees and trembles. The mountains melt like wax before the Lord. If they get in his way, they just melt out the way. That's how significant God is. The heavens proclaim his righteousness and the peoples see his glory. So a lot of what we've been reading is from the Old Testament. And I think a lot of you might be saying, well, that's the scary God of the Old Testament. It's different for us. You know, his presence is light and it's nice and he's loving. Uh, and he is. But it's not light. Um, let me read to you from Hebrews 12. Verse 18 to 29 says, For you have not come to what may be touched. 
I'll let you go there, actually, if you want to see it. Yeah. For you have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest, and the sound of a trumpet and the voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further be messages be given to them. So you've not come to what was before. For they could not endure the order given. Even if a beast touched the mountains, it shall be stoned. Indeed, it was so terrifying in, the, in their sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. So even Moses trembled with fear when he went up that mountain to meet with God. But you have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, to innumerable angels in festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. See to it that you do not refuse him who is speaking. For if they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, much less will we escape if we reject him who warns us from heaven. At that time, his voice shook the earth. But now, he has promised, yet once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. It's even more significant, his glory now. Um, the phrase yet once more indicates the removal of the things to be shaken, that is, the things that have been made in order the things that the things that cannot be shaken remain. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, and thus let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. So we approach him with reverence and awe. There's a greater glory. In fact, there's a, there's a phrase that, uh, there's a passage, and you probably know what it is, where it talks about how Moses, when he came down from the mountain, had reflection of God's glory in his face, and he shone with it. But the glory that we have is greater than the glory that Moses had. Um, so the, the glory now is even more heavy. It's more significant than the glory of the Old Testament if it's changed at all, because God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. So what does this lead us to? Knowing the significance of God should help us to worship Him. Recently we've been looking at the Lord's Prayer, and I've been trying to reconcile how we approach God as Abba, Daddy, Father, at the same time as knowing His glory and giving them the respect that it's due. And you sort of think, can those two meet? How do you approach Daddy and recognize his glory? But both are true. Um, and I think it's all about how we view Father. We all have different fathers, and I think we tend to think of God as just a bigger version and a better version of our dad. Um, and so we, we tend to think in terms of what was my father like, what is God like. My father was a bit different. My father was much older father. I was born when he was 60 years old. And when I was four or five, my dad had a heart attack. Now he survived the heart attack. But I remember ever since then, and I don't know if it was in the background of my mind or what, but I always treated my dad with care. Um, like he was a strong guy, he did a lot of stuff. He did more than a lot of young fathers would have done. He took us sailing, he did all sorts of amazing stuff with us. But I was always afraid of hurting him um, because I thought of him as old and fragile. Um, he needed to be treated with care. So my, God, my father was, was my father, but he was fragile. But our God, he's... He is our Father, but He is glorious. He is weighty. He is amazing. And we approach Him as a loving Father who wants what's best for us, but a loving Father who is glorious. Um, hallowed be His name. He has weight. Um, and He loves us. And it should encourage us, actually. We have a Father who, if mountains get in the way, they melt before Him. People collapse before him. No one can stand against us. Angels cover their face before him. There's no spiritual being that can stand against us because our God 
is significant. Uzzah was unable to come into the presence of God because he was not ready for it. He was not anointed for the job. He had no sacrifice made on his behalf. And he needed a barrier between him and God. But as Christians, we are anointed. Christ means anointed. Christians, anointed ones. We're anointed with, with the Spirit. We have had a sacrifice made on our behalf, a perfect sacrifice. And when that sacrifice was made, the curtain in the temple was torn in two, signifying that we now have access to God's presence. So while God is glorious, he is accept, accessible too. We can come into his presence. He wants us to. So I want us to have a few takeaways from this, and I would love to have actually had more time. I think there's probably could have been a series in this, but... I don't, yeah, I wish I had more time to explain some of these. But the first thing I want us to take away is that God matters and that his presence is significant. And I think hopefully you've got that from, from what I've been saying. Even when we're at a human level, if somebody significant humanly comes into the room, the atmosphere in the room changes. So if the king was to walk into the room today, I think I would have no idea what to do. I... Room tends to go quiet. People start to go, what do we do? What's protocol? Um, do we, how do we address them? Stuff like that. Um, you, you're a bit nervous if you get to speak to him. Um, how much more significant is it that when we ask God to come into the room and we ask for God's presence, um, it should change the atmosphere. It should change the way that we respond. God's presence is significant. The second thing I'd like us to take away, and I'd love to have actually spent more time on this uh, particular thing, was that those who experience the most of God's presence have greatest responsibility put on them. They're blessed with the experience of God's glory because they need it in order to give them the confidence to do the task that they have been asked to do. We see that with Moses. He's a massive task of going to Pharaoh and asking him to let the people go. But he got to meet God at a burning bush and he got to see God do amazing things. And then even all of that was enough. And later on he says, show me your glory, as if he hasn't seen his glory in all that he has done. Um, so another example of this is Ezekiel. Ezekiel was being prepared for a significant task. He had to approach a rebellious house of Israel and tell them that God was angry with them and that they were going to be punished. And he was told they were not going to listen to him and that they would mistreat him. Uh, in Ezekiel chapters 1 and 2, I'm not going to read them because they're a bit long, but in Ezekiel chapter 1, it's all about Ezekiel seeing God's glory. And he sees a crazy vision and you read it and... I'm not a very pictorial person. There are much more pictorial people here. I'm sure we'll get a lot more from it. But basically, there's this crazy vision of clouds and lightnings and thunders. And then there's wheels within wheels with eyes around them. And there's the seraphim uh, angels uh, with different types of faces and heads. And then there's God. And then he's told, don't be afraid of the people that you're sent to. Um, and give your message no matter what they do to you. Um, and no matter what I ask you to do, do it. And like he was asked to preach naked for three years or something. You know, he was asked some strange stuff and some crazy stuff. And I don't think that anyone would have done that unless they knew God's significance and his glory. Um, but on the counter side of that, if we have an understanding of God's glory, if we've experienced God's glory, it also gives us massive responsibility. Um, and we need to take that responsibility seriously. We can't see God's glory and then put him to the test. If we do, we're going to be in trouble. Numbers chapter 14, verse 22 to, 20 to 22, talks about the people of Israel who come out of Egypt. And... God says thus, he says, Then the Lord said, I have pardoned according to your words, so he pardoned them for the sins that they had done. But truly as I live, and all the earth, and as all the earth shall be filled with the glory of the Lord, 
None of the men who have seen my glory and the signs that I did in Egypt and in the wilderness yet have put me to the test these ten times and have not obeyed my voice shall see the land that I swore to give to their fathers and none of those who despised me shall see it. The Israelites had seen God's glory and yet they still doubted him. They still put him to the test. They didn't listen when he asked them to do stuff. They still questioned his goodness, his grace, his attitude towards them. He just rescued them from Egypt and they wondered whether he, he liked them and whether he wanted to save them. And he's, God wasn't okay with that. He's like, no, you know, I have shown them my glory and they still don't believe in me. They still don't trust me. So we cannot see his glory and disobey him. It's not okay. So I think sometimes maybe that's the reason that God hides himself a little bit from us is because we're maybe not ready to obey him. And if, we, if he was to show us his glory and we disobeyed him, then you know, that's a significant thing. So maybe in his grace he says, you're not ready for this yet. I'll, I'll show you my glory when you're ready. Recognition of God's glory should also make us much more thankful for his grace. Like when you think of this significant God and how massive he is, and then you think about our significance being like the grass of the field, the fact that he cares for us, what is man that you care for him? The son of man that you, whatever, have, have gracious thoughts about him, whatever it is, but what is man that you care for him? He's like the grass of the field that's here today and gone tomorrow, yet you care for him. It should make us thankful that this significant God loves us so much that he's made it possible for us to approach him. It should cause us to respect and worship him even more. The more glorious we realize that he is, the more we should just naturally worship him. It shouldn't be hard because we know who he is. It also means that it's easier for us to share him with others because we simply need to say this is who our God is. He is massive. He's glorious. Um, in fact, that's what people need in order to come to faith in God. If they knew his glory, they would follow him. And that's why Satan doesn't want them to see his glory. In 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 4, it says that Satan has blinded the eyes of unbelievers to prevent them from seeing the good news of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. God's, Christ's glory is good news. God's glory is good news. And Satan knows this. And his tactic is to blind the eyes of unbelievers so that they do not see his significance and his glory, make other things more significant than God, and they won't follow him. Um... So when we're praying for people who don't know God, that's what we could pray, that they would see his significance, his glory. Um, because that is working against what Satan is trying to do. And as we tell people of God's glory, then we are working against Satan and we are defeating the works of the evil one. So how do we do it? How do we glorify God? 1 Corinthians 10.31 is a bit about eating meat offered to idols and it says that whatever we do, we need to do it for the glory of God. And the context of the passage, like I said, is about meat offered to idols. And Paul says that if you eat meat that has been offered to idols with a thankful heart to the God who created it, you glorify God. But if somebody sees you eating that meat and they doubt that the God who created it is good, then don't eat it because that glorifies God. It, it makes God... Eating it will not glorify God because they will see God as not good or not significant because they think that this other God is significant. But, so not eating it glorifies God more in that context. So whatever we do, we do it for the glory of God. Um, so anything we can do for the glory of God, if I want to go for a walk in the mountains, I can do that for the glory of God as I thank him for his creation and his grace in making the mountains. If I enjoy a good meal and thank God for it, that glorifies God because I am giving him the worth that he is due. He made it. He is glorious. If I think about the intricacy of my body and the way it's made and use it and enjoy sport or whatever, that can glorify God. 
Um, anything we do that recognizes God's weight and significance glorifies him. We can give thanks. We can enjoy his creation. We can obey him. We can trust him in hard times. If we're going through hard times and yet trust God in those hard times, that glorifies God. It talks of his significance as more significant than the trouble we're going through. Um, so, I'm going to stop. <laughs> I would love to keep going. But I think it would be good for us to pray that we have and see more of his glory. Because if we understand his glory more, it's going to give us more ability to worship him, to serve him, to trust him, to share him with others. So can we finish by praying? Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. You are here. You are present with us. You are, you are good. You are all-powerful. You are loving. You are just. You know everything you know best. Sorry that I have not shown you the significance you deserve. You are the most significant thing in my life today and every day. Help me to put you first. Show me your glory as much as I can handle. Let everything else pale into significance, into insignificance compared to you. Do not allow the lies of the evil one to make other things more significant than they are. Forgive me for allowing busyness and doing to get in the way of putting you first in my mind. Help me to change the way that I think. May you be glorified in my mind and in my life. Mm -hmm.